Hey guys, Adam here. This was a really interesting interview for me to do. I mean, it's not really an interview, it's more of a discussion, I guess. I've been fascinated by this game confrontation for, gosh, at least 15 years at this point. So, as luck would have it, I managed to find a couple of guys that knew exactly what this game was and everything about it. So, I hope you either appreciate the nostalgia of it or the information of it. All right, uh, joining me is Chris and Josh uh, to talk about confrontation, which is not like, you know, confrontation, confrontation. This is Rackham's confrontation. Anyway, this was a really odd thing. It was a, I saw a thing on Reddit, somebody commented, and I was like, wow, you know, I've always, you know, been interested in this game. And you guys have heard me talk about it on the show, what a disappointment the, um, the Kickstarter was. We'll get to that in a minute. So the guy I commented underneath was like, oh, yeah, my friend is like one of like the guys still carrying a torch for this game, does uh, a big tournament every year and this, that and the other. And I'm like, well, reach out to him. I'm like, I've got a little podcast. I'd love, absolutely love to talk to somebody about this game, which has fascinated me since probably late 90s, uh, early 2000. So, so Yeah. You know, so here we are. Welcome, Chris and Josh, who's probably never listened to my show before. <laughs> I, I totally checked you guys out. Um, this is Chris, uh, and thank you for having us. Yeah, uh, my name is Josh, obviously, and uh, Confrontation, both Chris and I um, really, really love the game. We've both kind of been carrying the torch for a number of years now, and um, our current group kind of happened because the two of us ran across each other, both kind of repping Confrontation, and it kind of takes two to tango to get uh, groups going. And we were able to start a local group that's grown and grown and grown. Um, so it's probably, it's definitely larger than the East Coast, might be the largest in the U.S. right now. Okay. Yeah. How old are you guys? Uh, Mid-30s. Okay. Or at least I am. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 32. All right. So how long have you, uh, w when did it first, when did Confrontation first arrive in the U.S.? So Confrontation uh, originally started in 1998. It was French only at that point. Confrontation Second Edition came out i want to say around 2001 there was no english rules for it at that point a fan translated the second edition rules into english which rackham then adopted and so confrontation 2 came to the u.s probably about 2001 2002 and that was uh the game that many of us myself uh grew up yep. on before the third edition of the rules came out which is the one that most people know and remember I, I think from what I remember, uh, I've mentioned before, what attracted it, me to it was uh, these uh, anthropomorphic wolves. At least they look, that's what they look like. They look like werewolves to me. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting in front of me is the Wolfen Army book and from the age of Ragnarok. And we'll get to that later. What a kerfuffle uh, that was. So I was like, wow, these are really cool looking figures. You know, they have a lot of personality. The sculpts are really, really neat. It reminds me a lot of kind of like the early Citadel kind of stuff where they were really having fun sculpting it, you know, and it wasn't so serious. I mean, not that they're funny looking, but it's just they, they're they very, very unique. And yeah, they're, really, they're cartoony, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, when Rackham had first started, that was kind of their goal. They, they were forever a, a terrible, terrible business. They were really bad at business. 
Um, but they wanted to to collect some of the best sculptors, some of the best painters in the world at the time, some of the best designers, and and build a really beautiful product simply for the sake of the product. And um, that was really awesome for collectors and painters and, and people that liked their game, but wasn't necessarily the best recipe for success long term. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that that was that's one of the things is the uh, the early line of Rackham products. If you look at like the first generation of sculpts. They are, like, the goblins are incredibly cartoony, very silly looking. Um, some of the early dwarves, like, they, they were just having fun trying to make interesting looking characterful sculpts that they wanted to do um, and make them as unique as possible. None of the stuff that they were making when they were coming out was, like, a modular kit or anything. They were all monopose. Here's, you know, three or four guys with a sword. And, and fun and fun thing with that actually, um, I learned from a from a friend that was was close to Rackham and actually worked there for a little bit. Um, the goblins were all built on puns. They wanted the goblins to be funny and have pun names and things like that. It's cool. Uh, I mean, I think what I first heard about it uh, then was this was the first uh, skirmish game I ever really heard of. I think I'd gotten into like Warhammer Fantasy and 40k, you know, so we were pushing around like a big army, and then there was a big historical group in town. Again, even bigger armies and smaller scale, oh, yeah. bigger tables. So I was like, wow, it seems like it would be fun it, to just do a handful of figures each side on a much smaller thing, and then I ran into Confrontation, and that appears to be like what it was, and also, you know, uh, GW stuff, modifiers could get crazy with what you had to roll. And uh, I believe, uh, this uh, This is what I was told at the time, I don't know if this is right, you can correct me. Uh, it was like, well, you know, it doesn't matter, whatever it is, you're just rolling one dice per guy is, is how it was then. And I was like, wow, that seems pretty revolutionary, at least for the time. Go ahead, Josh, go ahead. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah... The, the, the dice rolling mechanic of it all um, is based off of, like, a certain person generally doesn't get however many attacks their profile says. Um, in a combat, they get, like, one die for themselves and one die for every opponent they're facing. Um, and so you can easily stack that against an opponent or it can easily overwhelm you. But the, the dice mechanic is fairly small. You can go in with a handful of dice. Uh not very many miniatures and get like a full game experience. And like you said, it was one of the earlier mass market skirmish games on the market. Um, GW had stuff in like white dwarf that would throw it out there and they had uh Necromunda and uh, Mordheim, but you know, for an actual, like just sit down and play, bring your armies to the uh, table game. This was a pretty early one. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the stuff that were, it, you know, they were really ahead of their time. There's a lot of stuff that was part of Confrontation that is now part of modern war games. Um, that's alternate activations, um, crazy wound tables and things like that that can get a little complicated. But uh, Chris is right, kind of at its core, instead of the old Games Workshop model of rolling 40 dice and then re-rolling 20 of them over the course of a Confrontation game, you know, a model that shoots is going to get six shots total. Um, so you, you have a limited amount of dice and you have to maximize your resources while you're playing. All right. So they came over here for sec second edition, and uh, did it have like a competitive scene? Yeah, there was a competitive scene. Um, Gen Con actually was the the site of uh, the World Championship for 
four or five years before uh, it kind of closed down. And there's still people, I'm sure, if you go to Gen Con, that still play it. Um, but it definitely had a competitive scene. Um, the game itself was kind of all over the map. And um, one of the things that was interesting about it is that despite it being a little bit different, um, you, had a, you had a weird following. You definitely had people that were not interested in it because they were sort of tied into you know, Games Workshop or Games Workshop games. And you see that nowadays, but there's so many games out there now that it's rare for somebody to be tied to just one game. But, you know, back then you had people that was, you know, I only play Warmer Fantasy or I only play 40K. So the buy-in and getting people to, to play this game was a little bit tough at times, but um, it was really rewarding for the people that were there. And you, you kind of had a, a tight community because of that, because you're, again, you're, you're trying to sell rules or, or shell out rules for a game that, um, you know, you're using an English translation. There isn't an official rule book or, you know, you're trying to get people resources or cards that are kind of scattered a little bit, which um, I'll talk about in a little bit. But I'd oh, love to hear yeah. Chris had to say. Yeah, I'm just going to echo that. Like, I wasn't really part of a competitive scene at all. Um, I was living in uh, southern New Jersey at the time, um, and we had a little play group, um, but they had the entire line on sale because apparently they sold decently. Um, like you said, with the the miniatures being so like full of character, um, a lot of times they'd be one to three miniatures in a blister, which is primarily how they were sold. It was really easy to convert someone who was playing like D and D to be like, oh, you got a dwarf? Like, look at these dwarves, they're really cool. You know, and if you want a miniature for it, like you could buy a box of like ten dwarves for forty bucks, or you can get this one dwarf for like twelve dollars, and look how much cooler it looks. And that was their angle, right? Like their angle oh, yeah. was like the whole group, the whole thing for this was like they were trying to attract painters, right? Their studio paint jobs were far and away better than um, anything Games Workshop was producing at the time for their studio stuff. Um, most of the professional painters you know and love today will tell you the same thing, which is they all started on Rackham models back when they first started, if they you know date to this time period. Um, and that was kind of the angle. Um, Chris kind of did a good segue for me. Rackham's model... Uh, which was great at the time and also horrible now for, for him and I trying to get people back into the game. Um, when you bought a blister off the shelf, came with the models, it came with the cards that you needed that was like the the rules, the profile for the models, and then every blister came with a rule book, a little mini rule book. And so to get somebody into the game was really, really simple because they would buy a single blister, they'd get models they could use or paint, they'd get a profile card that was useful for the game, and they would get a rule book to learn the basics of the game. That's, yeah, that seems to be a really good way to start. Uh, what you said where it's hard to get someone into it, I completely remember at that time. <laughs> uh, I, look, I've got like, I've got ADD and it's really bad with gaming. I'm, I'm all over. I mean, I can't even like hold down just like one army in a game system. I, I always get attracted to like, oh, let's try this, let's try this and or whatever. And so... Get, you would have been oh. my mark, buddy. You would have been my mark. So I used to do, um, I used to have, I'd build out like starter lists or whatever else for the local game stores. And it would be like, you know, because I think Games Workshop and, and really uh, War Machine at the time too was like, hey, you can get into our game for, you know, 40 or 50 bucks or whatever else. And so my mark was I'd find, I'd find the ADD guy. I'd find the guy that was trying to go over the place for armies. And I'd be like, hey, you want to throw down 40 bucks? You'll get a full army of confrontation. You can play next week or whatever kind of thing. That was, you were my target, man. Yeah, I would have been fucking sold just totally. All right, where is it? Give me more. All right. Oh, I can get another army? All right. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely would have done that. So, uh, in that vein, it was really hard for me to get people to do anything else. They, they got, at that time, it was like, uh, GW was kind of like a, a big, 
big investment, and there wasn't yep. a lot more options, so you didn't want to set your investment aside and try something that maybe might take off. You know, you wanted to be able to get a game in like anytime, anywhere. And so, yeah, I mean, you're, you you hit the nail on the head though, right? Because like that was the whole. I, I use the analogy of like a pickup basketball or a pickup sport event, right? Like. You know, you can go to any – back in the day, you can go to any store in the country. Even now, probably, go to any store in the country. You pull up with a 40K army, you, you probably can get a game, right? Right. If if you invested in some obscure, let's say, skirmish game called Confrontation, right, unless you know people in that group, it may be hard to get a game, and, and that's a hard sales pitch too. Um, I think what really worked for, for me and, and, and for the groups I, – I, I built groups a couple places across the East Coast when I moved different places um, – you know, you have to have that that desire to kind of show people to, to sell people on the game. And um, Chris knows this, and I've said it a number of times. You know, somebody that runs through a demo and plays the game and and, and gets the models in their hands, um, the game's really good. And I, I'd be really hard pressed to see anybody that uh, that tries it and doesn't want to keep playing. So at second edition, how many figures were was it on average per side, and how long did a uh, game take? It's it's actually really that's a great question. So. Uh, the French Championship in 2004 and 2005 was played in second edition, um, and it was at 300 points. Tra- uh, traditionally, now we play about 400. We, you know, games creep a little bit, but a uh, 300-point game or a 400-point game is essentially capped out at about 20 models tops. Frequently, you would play a game between 8 and 12 models per side. Okay, yeah, really dig that. Of course, nowadays, uh, I talk about this on my show uh a good bit like you know hey i used to really really wish wish so very hard for like a small scale skirmish game now that we just have them everywhere nowadays it oh, seems yeah. like every other month there's a kickstarter for either a fantasy or a um a science fiction it's small scale skirmish you know it's 10 or 12 guys aside on a three by three table you know it's a there's a lot of that nowadays but yeah, confrontation was always that first one that uh, I remember. Now, um, yeah, I was just gonna ask, like, how was the lore? Did that like really bring you in? <laughs> I, I love, um, I, I yeah. still love it. I'm I'm a junkie. Um, even the fun thing for me that is also, you know, it, it depends on the person. So, you, again, we'll go back to 2005. We'll talk about how Games Workshop would release an army book. You were really into dwarves or dark elves or Eldar. You know, you buy an army book, you could read the army book and learn all about the race. That really wasn't how Rackham operated. Uh, how Rackham, Rackham really operated was the lore or information around um, the armies were on the individual cards. So in some ways, you were this weird little archaeologist going and opening these blisters and reading the text on the cards to learn about the army um, and learn about the different uh, models or characters within the army um, with a couple, uh, a couple other exceptions, and I'll let Chris talk a little bit about that, but for me, that was the hunt. The hunt was, oh, hey, I really like this model. He's so weird looking. I wonder what, it, you know, wonder who he is or what he does or that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it's um the closest thing we got now is like Dark Souls, where you get like a thing and it gives you like a one sentence like quote or description. And it's like, oh, what's going on with that? And you might find like something related to it somewhere else. But generally, at least early on, there was no army book. You're just getting all of the information from like a rule book that has like three sentences on every army describing their deal and then you get the cards and if they're a character they'll have a little quote from the character their stat line their items might talk about like some heroic thing or whatever that happened with that item why it's special what 
magical demon or something possesses it, whatever. Um, but that's it. Like there, there's not army books full of lore like you would find in Fantasy or 40k. That's right, and they expanded out to be a little bit better for that, right? So they started giving out sort of card packs that had like a narrative or a campaign element, right? So you you could learn about stuff that way. But really, what what kind of came together and culminated for everybody, because you know obviously the sales pitch of hey buy these cards to learn about an army is is not really the easiest one out there. Um, they had they had a game called Ragnarok. This is before Age of Ragnarok. Um, which is a mass battle version of their game. And in, in that box was a lore book, which was helpful to talk a little bit about the world and the different armies and factions. And then they started to release their version of a magazine that came out every quarter that was called Cry Havoc. And Cry Havoc was built around, it was a basically a better version of White Dwarf during the time. It had a catalog, you could see some of the models, but it also had short stories, it had campaigns, it had... Uh, scenarios and things like that and in traditional Rackham fashion it was really polished really well put together and it was really designed to be um almost like a sort of soft bound rule book to go along with stuff and so um those were all the areas we sort of expanded on or sort of captured the lore and captured the world of of Arklash, which is which is the continent where confrontation is on okay um you mentioned that I wanted to expand on. It's great that I can edit this later. Uh, <laughs> although, yeah, sometimes I'm lazy and I'm just like, eh, eh, sorry. People, people are used to it, but at this point, all right. So, Let's do it yeah. So we were in second edition, and we were kind of uh, going forward. You mentioned Cry Havoc, which I think. I, oh no, sorry, Ragnarok. Now, Ragnarok was a mass battle type game, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, right. So Rackham was innovative again in this space, which was Rackham wanted to sell you a single model and have that model be usable in Confrontation, which was their skirmish game, Ragnarok, which was their mass battle game, Cadwallon, which was their later produced RPG, and Hybrid or Nemesis, which was their dungeon crawling board game. So when you would buy a single model, not all of them, but the vast majority of them could be used across every single game that Rackham produced. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I if, if, go ahead. Oh, I was I was gonna say if we're talking like the the weird like ahead of its timeness of of Rackham, um, Josh mentioned that there is this game Hybrid. It is a dungeon crawler at around the same time or before Descent came out, and now they're huge. Um, they had their like integrated RPG system. Like they basically, if Rackham had done everything that they did roughly in the same way, maybe switch from Metal Hold to Resin or something, um, in like 2014, um, it would be huge. It's it's ridiculous. But for whatever reason, like people weren't getting into um, dungeon crawling board games back in, you know, 2005. Yeah, I mean, they're also, I mean, to be fair, to be fair to, you know, why they all failed. They weren't good at business, though, Chris, right? Oh, no, 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 there's that, too. It's like there's, there's the big element of, like, they just didn't make money because lots of reasons. But. Jean Bay was the founder and the CEO, and, like, he's he was notorious for, like, he didn't care. He was like, this is pretty. I like it. And it was like, but is it going to sell? And it's like, nope. Um, in that vein, while that stuff is really cool for a consumer to get all those different games out there, it also was really hard um, – you know, to, to stock those products. And it's also, you're really spreading yourself really thin. If you make a really, really good skirmish game, but you're spending resources on creating an RPG game or later on a sci-fi pre-painted plastic game, or you're creating your own paint line, like that's very much trying to be a lot like Games Workshop without the resources and the manpower that, you know, Games Workshop had at the time. 
Uh, that's true. And, you know, over the past uh, three or four years, Games Workshop has made some moves. And yep. pe- people have kind of been like, eh, they're too big to fail. And I'm like, look, I'm 44 years old. Let me tell you young kids about this company <laughs> called FASA, who, you know, they had, a, you know, their game had a cartoon, you know, uh, lunch boxes, comic books, novels. They had everything Games Workshop has now, and they went bankrupt. So it can happen. You know, it can happen. Oh, sure. You know, you mentioned Nemesis. I forgot about that. That thing has been on my uh, BGG wish list, I think, forever. Uh, have you guys ever played it? Yeah, I, I have. Um, I own it. <laughs> oh, he doesn't say. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, I played it. It's, uh, it's so the, the funny thing about Rackham, and this is a good example of Confrontation 2nd Edition, um, their rule sets uh, were sort of notorious for having some translation issues or some confusion. One of the problems with Hybrid and Nemesis, uh, which was Remedy because fans stepped in because, you know, the IP is beloved, and we'll get to that when we talk about the Kickstarter and the rest of this stuff. Um, but fans kind of fill in the gap and fix that. But Hybrid and Nemesis um, rules were a little complicated, a little tough without the fan additions. I think Chris and I tried to play it at Nova last year, the year last before. Year, yeah. and, it, was, uh, it was last year, and it was the game itself, if you have someone like, talking you through isn't that bad it's very much just like hey you gotta go here and you have whatever it's it's not a complicated complicated rule system the way it is written out though is atrocious like none none of it flows the rule book is garbage um and i i mean like i also own copies of both of those and they're they're bad they're bad rule books it, the oh. thing that's funny, too, is, like, I'm old, so, like, if we had gone back and played that, like, ten years ago, and I, when I was still fresh in my mind, I'm sure we could have muddled through it, but I hadn't played that game in at least five years since we last played it, and uh, oh. I don't remember anything other than, oh, great, this is confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are much more complex games. I mean, I play Infinity. I know Josh has played Infinity. That That's, like, the confusing miniature game sure. out there right now in my head. Um it's certainly less confusing than that, <laughs> and at least for me. Chris, we're screwing up, man. We're not selling this really well. Remember, we're supposed to be the hype men for this, and we've oh. already, we've already the, you know, the first thing we're talking about, we're like, man, it was bad. Well, Dang. We, we haven't got that far yet. You know, we're in second edition. <laughs> we're talking about, like, other things they, they were doing. All right, so if we made it through second edition, what is third edition? Is this the pre-painted thing? No, no. Third edition is the one that uh, that captured the hearts and minds of everybody out there. Um, it's the one that even now our group basically plays third edition with some minor tweaks. Um, it's Chris may disagree. Uh, I've played a bunch of games out there. Confrontation third edition is what sort of captured my heart and kept me playing, um, you know, 10, 15 years later. Um, I really love it a lot. Um, and the, the goal of it was really a tightening of the rule set. The goal of it was to kind of make this uh, pretty refined and pretty polished skirmish game um, that, again, was really ahead of its time. And it still has some some warts and rough areas, but it's um, it's a really pretty solid rule set and um, something that was really a ton of fun. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Um, third edition for me, um, I still get my rules mixed up with second edition because that's what I played primarily before josh and i got together um but it um it streamlines things to to a place where 
games are relatively fast. They're dynamic. I, I would say most games at a like a standard 300 to 400 point game, um, where again you're using like somewhere between eight and 20 models at the the high end, um, are running 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, so it's not a long game. A lot can happen during it. Um, it generally isn't just two forces mashing up against each other in the middle. There's a fair amount of uh, positioning um, and some mind games that can go along with that, which I really like. Yeah, we played. Um, and and we played pretty. Really, yeah, we played pretty uh, scenario focused too, right? One of the things that it kind of makes these games and really war games for me interesting are the scenario face, the scenarios, and, and the the tactical play of that. Um, Confrontation three came out in June two thousand five, um, and really it, it, it capitalized on some of the flaws, but sort of kept the confrontation spirit. One of the things of confrontation that um, Chris is, I think, talking about that we both kind of love is there is a balance of tactical decision-making and sort of optimization or, or kind of, you know, the traditional like competitive nature of that, but there's also a narrative focus and there's also luck plays a factor. And uh, one of the core mechanics of confrontation is if you roll a one, whatever test you've, you've taken is typically a failure. Um, and for a lot of people, that's really, really infuriating, right? You've done everything possible. You've stacked all the, the perfect way and then you roll that one and it all falls apart. And, for me, that's part of the fun of confrontation because to me, it's it's not, you know, imagining all of your successes. It's how do I deal with my failures? How do I deal when build redundancies around things that could fall apart? In the same vein, a six can roll up. So even somebody that's a little weenie goblin may have his lucky day and, and blow that six and, and actually, um, you know, fight off the giant minotaur or whatever else. So you would say where we are now it's is three or i i see people call it like 3.5 as well yep. yeah so 3.5 is uh so 3.5 came out that was uh later in uh when rackham was uh, transitioning over to age of ragnarok when they were filing their first bankruptcy they released uh 3.5 or which was a, a two-page rule addendum to the existing 3.0 rule book um there were some good things in there uh our group contends there were some bad things in there um so we don't, that's one of the reasons why we actually don't play 3.5, we play 3.0 with some tweaks. Um, and it 3.5 is probably the last official rule set for confrontation um, out there. Okay. So after that, then fourth edition was the prepaints, right? Correct. So what actually happened is uh, 3.5 had come out and they create, and Rackham at that point had filed for its first bankruptcy. Um, their, their push at that point when they were bought out by venture capitalists was there was a desire to make more of a mass battle combat game, to have them compete uh, closely with like Games Workshop or other games in the market, and the desire was to use their IP to create Age of Ragnarok. And Age of Ragnarok was the pre-painted plastic game, but uh, to make that transition, um, they had released, similar to what 40K just did when their newest edition came out, they released indexes or temporary versions to get people to play Age of Ragnarok. The, the problem with that was um, you're talking about buying a blister of a single model. You know, you have unit sizes of four to six models kind of thing. So a lot of people didn't have armies of that size. And uh, Rackham also at the time said, hey, we're done with confrontation. That game's dead. We're not playing that anymore. We're not selling anything for that anymore. It's totally gone. Goodbye, people. Best of luck. Uh, <laughs> do the Ragnarok thing or nothing. And um, so that was the big schism in the community. 
Uh, they switched from squares to round bases, which, you know, that we all know how that went with uh, Games Workshop. Uh, same thing for uh, for Rackham. And uh, it was a it was a big to do It was uh, the big debate, at least in the groups I was in miniature gaming in, uh, you know, 2007 or so. Yeah, I, I wonder how much AT43, uh, <laughs> you know, how much that had influence on, you know, doing a confrontation that way. Look, I love that game. I love every, I love everything about that game, and it just makes me cry to realize that you know it, it, it's gone. But I, I do wonder because I was like buying it and I was collecting it, and I was anybody I gamed with, I was beating them over the head with this game. Like, oh my gosh, it's pre-paints. <laughs> Games Workshop is done, you know, because I, I don't paint, I contract out. So for oh. me, for me to be able to buy the unit. And it actually be painted fantastically, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And yeah. being able to put it on the table and play, it was perfect. Absolutely loved it. And that was again ahead of their time. That's what X Wing ended up doing in the future, right? This was this was their sales pitch, right? And um, I think that AT forty three was successful. I think AT forty three is not it's not a bad game by any stretch of the imagination. I think the bigger sales the bigger sales pitch that was hard for people to swallow was to have it be confrontation, right? One of the things that I think would have been interesting at the time is if they had released those same models and they had a pre-painted plastic version that would have sold to people that wanted the, that one, or they had the unpainted resin version for the people that were painters or the people that they had sort of collected along the way that were interested in the painting or hobbyist aspect of it, I think they probably would have been able to you know, split the baby and been pretty successful at that point. But um, as it was, they, they took a you know, hell or high water approach and um, that really damaged a lot of uh, the community. And, the, you know, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but the rumor was that some of the later releases for Confrontation, right as they were transitioning over to Age of Ragnarok, were done deliberately to produce um, very powerful power creep profiles to try and destabilize the game so people were less inclined to play it. I, I don't have any truth to that. I will say that the later profiles are fairly strong, Um I don't know that they break the game, but they're, they're definitely there was definitely some power creep there, and I think that that was part of that transition into Age of Ragnarok um, as a game. And the other pitch for Age of Ragnarok, and I don't know enough about AT43 to say this or to know, but I don't know what point level AT43 is played at. But when Rackham was first trying to sell um, Age of Ragnarok, they were trying to sell it at you know a thousand or two thousand points, and in reality, that game probably only works at you know three, four, five thousand points. Okay, so how, how does that compare to, like, a, a 40K, 2,000-point army? How does that? Yeah, so um, the Age of Ragnarok armies at probably about 5,000 points are probably around 60 to 80 models. Um, oh, okay. And so for a lot of people, when you're buying, and, and for some of the armies that were only in metal at this point, only sold in blister packs of two or three models, getting to those 80 models is a big pitch. The pre-painted plastic models came in individual unit boxes, which was a good thing for people that wanted to play that angle. But you had people that were frustrated because they didn't like the pre-paints as much as they liked the old metals. And there was a lot of uh, frustration around the fact that all the materials that Rackham was producing at the time, whether it was the army books or um, other, you know, some of the videos and stuff they'd put out at the time, were showcasing metal models and not the pre-painted plastic. That was likely done in part because Rackham was flat-footed and didn't have all this stuff already done, right? We, we think of that, like, in the modern world, when Games Workshop releases an army, you know, they've produced that for the last eight months, and they have the army ready to go. 
Rackham wasn't in that spot. So they were basically, they'd released an army book and they'd have, you know, one pre-painted plastic unit and they were trying to go more and more, but in order to fill the void, they're putting more of those metals out there as, as deception. But the idea of, of trying to get an 80 model army out of the metal uh, Rackham models was really, really hard for people. And the pre-painted plastics just weren't there yet. Um, it wasn't until the very, very end that you started to see more of the ability for people to go to the store and pick up an army box or pick up a couple of boxes and have some of those um, Age of Ragnarok armies. But again, it was only those five core books that uh, were the first ones out. And and for um, contrast, the original uh, confrontation line by the end of it, I think, had 17 playable factions. Um that's probably right. They also, for yeah. Age of Ragnarok, I'm not bitter or anything, but they definitely did destroy my entire army. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. They had, so that's the other thing. We should talk about this. They had an end times level event, too, because everything that has happened has happened before. I feel like I'm in, like, Battlestar Galactica or one of these other, like, weirdo shows. Um, Spoilers, by the way. Yeah, so, sorry. Uh, 12-year-old how, TV how, show. Yeah, how old is Battlestar Galactica? Can I, can I, what's, what's the <laughs> length of time on a spoiler here? Come on. Um, what this, when this throw it out there, Dumbledore dies. Um, anyway, so, uh, the, uh, they had an end times level event and it was poorly done. It was, you know, probably, it was two magazines of Cry Havoc. They had probably a total of six pages, um, and they did a lot of silly things. You're, you got some of the, what used to be this lore, this narrative, this, this deep, rich sort of environment was changed into like things like dwarves fall down dead or like, <laughs> like silly things like that, that make no sense. Um, and again, not bitter or anything that my my entire army was destroyed randomly when somebody went into the cavern and killed them all. Oh, so that would be like uh, they were Bretonians or um, I'm trying to think of the other one that people are mad that they're missing. Tomb Kings. Yeah, Tomb King. yeah, Tomb King. So yeah. Yep. So that happens. Uh, Elsa's which were the, the like human barbarians, they were destroyed, and then I play Midnor, which are uh, demonically possessed dwarves. Uh, they were destroyed as well. Well, that's just not nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so we got a, in traditional, just like the Bretonians and Tomb Kings. We got our little index books so we could play in the new game. Um, but it was clear they were they're moving on from those factions, and uh, the difference really is Age of Sigmar kind of happened and, and was successful. And those Bretonian and Tomb King players are shucks out of luck. Uh, my, you know, my game just went belly up entirely, so I don't, you know, I, to, I guess I'm not as bitter as them, right? Right. Okay. So let's. I, I think we're we're getting to there. It's like, all right, we're we're in third edition, three point five edition, you know, whatever. And so we make it to fourth, which was Age of Ragnar Ragnarok, which is the prepaints, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And so at that point, this they where we are with Age of Ragnarok, that's their second bankruptcy filing. At that point, Jean Bay, who is the CEO and founder of Rackham, stepped down. That was about 2008. Rackham changed their name to Rackham Entertainment. At that point, they produced their last Age of Ragnarok book, which was the Limbo of Acheron, which was the undead. Um, and that uh, was their final thing, and they went bankrupt finally for the final time. And fun fact about, because you're an 1843 player, um, the uh, Acheron models, some of them um, were not really produced a lot. Some of the models in the Acheron book were never produced. You could never, you could never buy them. They never actually made it to production. And some of the other ones, there were a handful that were just only produced a little bit. Um, but that was it. Rackham Entertainment went bankrupt, and that was the end of Age of Ragnarok and Rackham as everybody knows it. All right. So I think I remember around that time 
when it happened, and you know it it just kind of faded into into the background. I think uh, I picked up this Wolfen Army book off eBay for like three dollars or something like that, just to kind of read the background because yep. I, I I was always interested. And uh, I, well, I guess I should mention at some point uh, off of Barter Town or somewhere, I bought a bunch of. Um, Prior to the pre-paints, I bought a bunch of metal figures mm-hmm. of, of the Wolfen and uh, just had them in a box, never got them painted, and ended up uh, selling them. So I was always interested in the oh. background, so I got the book and, and read it. Hang on, did you make a profit? That's the key, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so, you know, because it, <laughs> it I had it sitting around long enough that, you know, pe- they were out of print and people were like, oh, I kind of need that. So, yeah. uh, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, Chris knows I'm a, uh, fricking hardcore dealer. I'm a drug dealer for this one. What is the, what's the appropriate term, Chris, for, for me at this stage of, of this? I mean, I would say it's plastic crack dealer, but none of this <laughs> plastic, it's all, it's all metal. Um, so, um, the thing that's interesting actually is that when Rackham had transitioned off of metal into the prepainted plastics and said they weren't producing any more metals anymore, um, what actually this began to lead to sort of an interesting, secondary business um some of the later metal kits there were very very few copies of them produced even now uh, the moloch box is is basically demon princes a lot of people love those models and love them for warhammer and other things like that those boxes if you had a traditional inbox like the actual box itself those um it used to retail for 45 i think it goes for over 200 now um and yeah. what ended up happening was a number of uh recasters cropped up and so people would had purchased the original metal models and started to create recasts of these old Rackham models. And that became sort of the industry at the time was giving this secondary market because there's still a number of people that wanted the old Rackham models and they would pay reasonable amount of money for the recasts. And early, early on, it was really painful because there wasn't a really easy way to differentiate between an official model and a recast model. Um, and we were talking about price points of, you know, $200 for two models or something like that. Um, you had a lot of people that got burned and got really frustrated. Hmm. I, I had no idea people were recasting this. I mean, yep. I, 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 to I, this day. Oh, well, okay. We'll get there in just, yep. just a second. All right. Yeah, so we've got something. Yeah. So we, yeah, we've made it to, to pre-paints and the bankruptcy and it died. And so, okay. So like I said, I bought this book off eBay, cheap, whatever, you know, this is a distant memory for me, this is a game that could have been, would have been, whatever for me, and so I was really surprised to see what was it last year that all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, there's a Kickstarter. We're coming back, baby. It's the Confrontation Kickstarter." Well, even before that, um, yeah, there, you had there, there were two. Yes, yeah, what happened uh, actually before that is really the, the story itself is, is actually the IP is interesting, right? So the Kickstarter came back. We'll talk about that. Kickstarter made a lot of money, lost a lot of money. That's a whole other story. Chris is on top of that, and he'll not he'll knock that out of the park. Uh, yeah, no. he's, he's got it all written up. He's, been, he's living this, right? Um, actually, after this, um, there was there's a bunch of stuff. So Fantasy Flight Games purchased all of the old medals and distributing those. Um, there were a number of people that held medals in different spa- uh, places. There was, if you wanted the old models, you were looking in Mexico, you were looking in Canada, you were looking over the place because there were still pockets of these models to get. Um, 
the actual uh, rights to it were purchased by uh, Cool Money or Not at one point. Um, cool Money or Not was then utilizing those rights to try and release a new version of the game. They created what they called Confrontation Phoenix and were going to release a new version of the rules. When they released their Guilds of Cadwall on Kickstarter, um, they had teased people to back that Kickstarter to get beta copy of the Confrontation Phoenix rules. They That never came to light. And, and uh, Kulmanir not subcontracted out to a uh, Chinese company uh, to called Legacy Miniatures to create um, a bunch of Rackham models in resin. And those models were some of the, the really well-selling kits. But the key to this was actually capturing some of the unreleased models that people had seen in concept art or had seen sculpted that they really, really wanted. Um, two of the models that stood out to that were the uh, Tirnabor, which is the basic dwarves steam golem that had been teased for about three years prior to Rackham going bankrupt. Kulmanir uh, not produced that with Legacy Miniatures. And the Midnor Hydra was another one that was out there. The the real thing in traditional capitalistic fashion, um, those models were produced and tried to be sold at exorbitant prices um, to a point where uh, Kulmanir Knott had a huge backlog of these models because they, they had sold a bunch initially to people like me who are junkies, um, but they were not able to sell the full, the full line to the point where over the last two or three years now, Kuhlman or not has done these massive sales to get rid of their old stock. Um, I think on, on Miniature Market, just as a as a weird thing, um, I think Miniature Market does the, the, the drop thing for a while, where they'll have as, as many as they'll as many of the money, many as they have, and then drop the price every day right. until it's all sold. Right. Um, and they put this this Hydra model, which is like this. It's a beautiful model. We all have one now because of this. But um, it's got a trash feature, Chris. It's got a really bad picture. It makes the model look horrible. Uh, I've painted two of them. They're gorgeous, but the model oh, picture is terrible. Yeah, yeah, the picture's terrible. They're they're fantastic miniatures. They retailed for originally what like hundred twenty. Yeah, like that. One twenty, and I think we picked them up for like twenty four dollars each or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, they just had tons of them that they couldn't get rid of, and so you get them for a fifth of the of the retail price when they're still in box retail miniatures and part uh, of it's because the, the the model itself well it's a gorgeous model shouldn't have been 120 bucks right like oh, it's it's right. Right. Oh, and that's kind of, okay. the history of this ip it's it's a cursed ip uh woman you're not bought this they produced this they couldn't do anything with it they ended up selling it to a french studio called cyanide cyanide created a couple video games off of it trying to maximize that ip uh those video games really weren't that successful cyanide's known for creating the blood bowl video game and a couple other ones, they actually, when they couldn't do anything with that IP, they ended up selling that IP to another French company, and that French company was the one who created the Kickstarter. Okay. So, yeah, I'm looking now, and I'll have this linked in the show notes, uh, on miniaturemarket.com, uh, the Rackham Confrontation Legacy Miniatures, the Hydra. It's, yeah, the MSRP is 120 I think currently it's uh, 85 and it says they have seven in stock. Uh, yeah, the picture makes it look pretty bad, but I could see how that would be dressed up and look better. It's a gorgeous sculpt, like, and the, uh, the casting. I'm a huge nerd for miniatures and miniature quality and sculpting. I know Josh is, too. I just get really passionate about it. Um, but, uh, like, the sculpt itself is very well done. It's very crisp. It's a, it's a very hard, high-quality resin that's not brittle at all. Um, like, it, it's... 
worth a decent amount of money to, compared to other things on the market. So I don't think $120, but like $80 is probably a fair price point compared to the rest of the market. Yeah, um, or something close to that. Mind, uh, at this point, for a lot of these models, is Rackham's bankruptcy, right? You don't have the studio painters. You don't have the studio photographers. You don't have the people that would normally take one of these models and really make it look gorgeous. Um, and that was a factor, right? You've got the, the photos that circulate for the Hydra or some of these other models is just basically a bare resin picture of it. Um, or it's a fan painted version of it or things like that, which are good. There, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but there's something that's a little bit different than the actual, uh, you know, the studio paint jobs or the, the high end painters that, uh, that Rackham was using back in the day. Yeah, they have five different confrontation uh, legacy miniatures, and the cheapest mm -hmm. one is on sale for thirty bucks. Yeah, and I mean there are people out there that are still doing it. I mean, as somebody that monitors this, sells this stuff, buys this stuff, um, we'll get to why I do that later. But um, you know, for there is still a market out for that, right? You know, eBay still crops up and that kind of stuff. You still see some heavy prices for a lot of these models, and they've kind of become this iconic or collector item kind of thing, um, which is kind of funny, um, but also um, kind of fun. And it actually kind of is in some ways how the hobby has shifted too, is that you've got people that are playing the game, but you've got people that are collecting the models because it's nostalgia or they remember this or whatever. Yeah. I had no idea guilds of Cadwallon was actually a confrontation game. Uh, you can currently yep. get it off uh, Amazon for like 13 bucks. Yeah, there were three um, that were produced. Guilds of Cadwallon was one of them. There was, oh, I forget what it's called. I think it's called, there's an expansion was, I think, City of Ashes, but it was a yep. board, an official board game. Um, and then there was um, Legends of Arcana or Mastery of Arcana, which is a card game that's loosely Rackham tied. They use a lot of the old Rackham art. Um, yep. But those were the three that were produced by, um, I think, Kuhlman or not, and, and or FFG. I can't remember which one did which. which um, one of the things about Kuhlman is this is kind of fits in the period between the game dying and the uh, Kickstarter is uh, Jean Bay and uh, a couple other of the people, the more senior people at Rackham, went over and work currently for Kuhlman or not. Um, they are on the staff. They were a big part of that initial team that put out Stomp Aside and the initial wave of like early Kickstarter board games that Cool Mini did involved a lot of the former heads of Rackham. Yeah, and I, I think that's key. Like one of the things that's interesting from, from our perspective as like, you know, historical fans here is um, most of the people that worked in Rackham got jobs elsewhere, right? Like when they went bankrupt, it's not like these people were out in the street. They were really successful at what they did. And some of the, stu the same stuff that people love today, whether it's models or art or other stuff, those people are now working for other companies. And you can actually see those influences um, as you look at some of the more modern work across the board. And I mean, um, in, in terms of like one of the bigger um, players is the sculptor Aragorn Marks, who was one of the main uh, confrontation sculptors, is now like the lead sculptor at GW. You sound so positive, Chris. You you hate his sculpts. I hate his sculpts. Um, I think he is really bad at certain things. Really good at other things. He's great at monsters. He's terrible at people. Um, but like he is the lead at GW, and he is in charge of their like miniature department. Um, and I mean, he does good work there um, for the most part. I, I still have some issues with cer certain elements of his models, but uh, for the most part, I mean, he's he's had a great career. 
um, looking at like the miniature sculpting, um, you know, people who have made a career out of that, he's probably, I mean, at the top of the, at the top of the list, he's working for the largest company heading their miniature department. All right. Now you mentioned video games based on confrontation. What were those? So there were, um, there were three of those produced by cyanide. One was, uh, they just called it confrontation. Um, that was their first attempt in foray into it. It's a bad, bad video game. Um, it is basically sort of a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's not good. Don't worry about it. Um, they created Our Clash Legacy, which was more of a story or narrative-focused one, which I have played. It's better than the other confrontation game. It's not good um, in the sense that the story is pretty poor and doesn't really align with confrontation. The, the key which you'll find is, you know, all this stuff is the IP itself is, is valuable. People love it. People want it. So it's a lot of like, you know, Ninja Turtles or Transformers. Somebody slaps the IP on something and think they're going to get something out of it. And you get an initial push, but then if you produce something that's crap with it, and that's pretty much what's happened across the board, it's pretty bad. But Our Clash Legacy um, had some tactical moments, but it's it's not a very good game. And the story is pretty, pretty poor. And then they actually produced another game that I don't think ever got out of beta, which was called Dogs of War. That was designed around rackham's dogs of war game which is a sub game within confrontation very similar to mordheim which is a sort of campaign roster game where your models gain experience and and those kind of things and the dogs of war game was the best game that cyanide produced and was designed around that but it never got out of beta uh, so it, yeah. yes so you can still play it today i think it's uh, i think all three of these are on steam right now um i actually think i own all three of them because i'm that level of a junkie um, the Dogs of War game, they struggled with how to monetize it, right? Because I think it was free at the start, and they were trying to figure out to, to monetize it, whether microtransactions or other means, um, and just never really got it off the ground. Um, and at this point, I think, I'll speculate, but I think that Cyanide had kind of gotten as much out of the license as they could get. They realized that they weren't going to get as much as they wanted, um, and I believe they sold that license on pennies on the dollar, to um, Sans Dieter, who is the was the confrontation Kickstarter group, um, and they got a pretty good steal. And um, Chris can tell you more about what makes them pure, pure evil. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What, what are you gonna say? I, well, I just see it. I'm looking at it right now. Dogs of War Online, right there on Steam. I had no idea this existed. Most people don't. Uh, I, nor, nor why would you? It's not, I mean, again, if you if you have a choice in the, in the plethora of the ocean of video games and you could play anything out there, these three would not be the ones you'd pick, let me tell you. I mean, I, I saw where I have a confrontation on my wish list. I guess it never went on sale. It, you can get it now for 10 bucks. Then I'll have this linked in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, I guess it just never went on sale, so I never bought it. So... This has a mixed review of 701, oh. and uh, it was released uh, in 2014. And uh, yeah, oh, that was wow. like the the last review was about then. And um, yeah, oh no, sorry, there was an April 27th review. Love this great digital version of my favorite tabletop miniature game. Looking forward to many more hours on it. So, they'll, never, can, they'll never escape. That we are going to die, and there'll still be somebody out there that's like, I love confrontation. It's going to happen. It's, it's one of those IPs that's never going to die. Um, 
and it really is truly beloved. And, uh, you know, those video games are bad. As somebody that has played thousands of confrontation games, they don't remind me of confrontation really at all. And um, don't do it. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 we've now told you not to buy hybrid or nemesis. Now we're telling you not to buy these things. We're Again, Chris, we're doing really bad at this, man. Well, look, we're, we're going to end with the how do we get into this game? What do we need to buy? Well, you know, we'll get there. You'll do it. We got to you will bang that drum. It will happen. Oh, I, I'm sure I immediately I will hit eBay first before the people listening to this. So I'll get the low price. No, you're good. You uh, just message me offline. I got you, I got your hook. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. We are, gosh, uh, we've gone through prepaints. We've gone through, you know, uh, I hate it when people buy up IPs like this, and it's kind of like, uh, they're kind of weekend at Bernie's, you know, it. it's let me take this dead corpse of this thing you liked and make it dance and see if you'll buy some stuff. You know, I hate well, that is, That's the perfect analogy for the Kickstarter. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I had forgotten about this game. It was over. It was done with. Maybe if I saw it on sale somewhere, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about these models. I really like those. I'll buy that and get them painted up or whatever. And all of a sudden, surprise, Kickstarter, we're coming back. It's Confrontation. Tell me about that. So um, the company that um, did the Kickstarter is Sans Detour. It's a French company. Um my theory as to why they were the company to do it is because they, um, the leader, the head of their company also was the head of a uh, online store called Ludic Bazaar, which, um, Ludic Bazaar? Yeah, L U D I K Bazaar, um, French. I, I mean, not the name, but I, I don't Ludic, know. Ludic Bazaar also, the other piece, by the way, Ludic Bazaar bought, uh, all of Rackham's old, almost everything. Right, so yeah. Fantasy Flight Games took all the U.S. distribution. Ludic Bazaar bought all of Rackham's back catalog there, including um, the old metal models, including some of the molds, the original molds that were used to sculpt some of the models. Ludic Bazaar had those for a period of time as well. Yeah, they were they were one of the places to go if you were like, I need this miniature. This is the only place online that has it. Um, you could go to Ludic Bazaar and get a slightly inflated euro price for it. Um, and so the CEO of that company was also the CEO of Sans Detour. Um, and Sans Detour is a company that primarily, from what I can tell, um, licensed and translated RP, uh, Cthulhu RPG books for, for the French market. Um, and so they had a couple of um, crowdfunding things through Indiegogo um, or Ulule, the French equivalent to Kickstarter, um, where they were like, okay, we got uh, Chaosium. Chaosium has licensed the rights to us for this Cthulhu game. Um, you know, like Masks of Nyarlathotep, I cannot pronounce those things, but, and so we're going to make a nice book for it. We're going to have like, you know, a nice case for it, whatever it's in French, here it is. Um, and so they decided to get the rights to the confrontation, uh, right. And, and when I say they got the rights, they, um, their financial director had set up a company called Stellar Licensing. They technically hold the rights. That's the only thing they hold the rights to is confrontation, um, and have done it. And Sans Detour technically licenses the rights from this guy that is their financial director. Um, and so they they do this Kickstarter. They say, oh, we're going to have um, 160 some metal miniatures. Um, we're going to ship it to you for this price. 
they've never produced a miniature with any previous endeavor. They've never made a miniature. Um, oh, they didn't even say metal at the beginning. They were saying plastic. Um, so um, the initial pitch was we're gonna we're gonna give you high quality plastic miniatures that are going to be equal in detail to the old metal models. Um, you can buy in for I think three the equivalent of about three hundred U.S. dollars, three hundred fifty somewhere in there, and you'll get a box of what ended up being 160 of them. They Wait, hang never... on, does that sound too good to be true? Right? Um, as a person who has backed a number of Kickstarters for um, board games and other miniature products, like that is impossible. That is not anyone who's done Kickstarter. Like The best deals um, that exist are not as good as this. Um, or some, there's, there's a catch somewhere. I gotta, I'm going to clarify, too. It's 178 models. It was... Seven. Yep, 178, 300, uh, 299 euros, and it also included uh, some terrain, some battle mats, and uh, all the uh, stretch goals as well. All right, look, we're not talking about, like, the biggest victim here. There was one person, and we talk about this on the show, uh, my co-host Richard is fascinated by Kickstarters that have, like, the super-duper insane level. If you have more money, then you know what to do with. There was one of these for this, and it was at 1,794 euros, which is probably about two grand American now. All right, you would get six copies of the core set, uh, the battle sets, six copies of the stretch goals, all the add-ons, late pledge, whatever. One person backed that. So I feel bad for them. I can make you a promise. Uh, I can make you a promise on the air. It's, I'm yeah. a junk. I'm not that much of a junkie. Yeah, it, dude. If you're listening to this, we'll we'll change your name. We'll disguise your voice. Please come on my show and talk about why you wanted to drop ten grand, uh, two grand on this. Anyway. So. Um, but anyway, so this Kickstarter went on. It reached about the midway point um, where you can go on websites that'll like give a, a projection for what it should reach. It was projected to be about a million and a half. Well, hey, um, Chris, 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 one thing I want to I want to say because I think it's huge. They raised over eight, over eight hundred thousand euros in the first twenty four hours. Oh yeah, that was that was a really big deal. They they knocked it out of the park that first day. Um, the sales pitch was incredible because it was. It was amazing. It was unbelievable for some reason. Look, I know I was interested. I was like, "What confrontation? That game? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm all over this. Let me get over there." Yeah, totally. And um, I, I think what happened was as time went by, they didn't. They, they weren't able to show that they knew what they were doing. Um, the language they were using made it clear they did not understand the game in any way. Um, I personally asked questions of them, very basic questions about game mechanics. They had no idea what I was talking about. Um, very basic miniatures, uh, molding and sculpting uh, questions. Again, no idea. So at the end of this, the the price, the, uh, the amount that they raised dropped um, quite a bit. It's one of the only times I've seen that big of an exodus from a Kickstarter. Um, and so by the end, they they ended up saying, okay, here's all our stretch goals. Please come back. Please back us. And they made, uh, what is their total sitting at now? Um, uh, basically 400,000 euros. Yeah. So less than, sorry, not great. <laughs> um, significantly also, less than they were hoping. It's also two things that are, I think, worth pointing out. One, they kind of panicked and then instantly unlocked all the stretch goals, which is also a, a terrifying thing in a Kickstarter because it tells you they're really in trouble. And I just want to highlight here, 
if this isn't already clear, Chris was definitely one of their favorite people. Yeah, um, I am a commenter on there. Um, I I basically stopped because it's pointless, but um, I, I really wanted to get answers from them about what their plan was and why this was worth backing. I was hopeful. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a bit naively, like I wanted this to happen. Um, wait, wait. As well this is, the, this is your chance. Hang on, this is your chance. Were you the guy that backed the 1,794? <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> no, um, definitely not. Um, that I, I'm, I feel bad for the person who did that. They will never see that money. Well, and to be, and to be fair, let's bring it home though, because this is true for you and I both, Chris. I don't think either one of us is going to get our dollar back. Probably not. Uh, again, we back, we back for a dollar to comment and follow it because we wanted to know kind of what was going on. You know, I, I, again, that that kind of taints this brand. You said it was a cursed IP, and damn, it 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 absolutely seems like that. Look, I will say, if you believe in this, it's a good deal because, like, I, looking at it, you know, it's this is what you get for three hundred twenty euros, which I think at the time was $396. Now it's probably closer to $320. But <coughs> I didn't want to drop excuse me. I didn't want to drop 400 freaking dollars on this game that I've been casually interested in for about a decade or more. So uh, I mean looking at the figures, yeah, they're cool, but I I don't want all these. I I and, yeah, and that, that was, was one of the big things is they didn't offer anything less than that initially. I know. Um, uh, and that was what people wanted. Bad. They wanted to buy a single, you know, army faction or two or whatever, right? And like, and be able to get a, you know, the army of the set. Yes, absolutely. I would have bought, of course, you know, the Wolfen. But uh, my other favorite fantasy race is the dwarves, and they really, you know, had some unique sculpts, some cool looking guys, and, um, you know, that was gorgeous. yeah. Uh, by the way, who are the uh, caterpillar dwarf-looking guys? Those are my guys, yeah. man. Yeah. That's my stuff. The uh, those are the dwarves of Midnor. So the dwarves of Midnor are uh, demonically possessed dwarves. Essentially, they're the uh, the dwarves' worst nightmare. They live in the caverns uh, beneath the dwarves, and like one of those body snatcher horror movies, they sneak out at night. They capture dwarves, um, and they basically. Uh, possess them, demonically possess their bodies, um, and give, bring them over to the will of the despot, which is their, uh, their god. Oh, that's not very nice, but... I okay. disagree, man. I think it's the best. <laughs> and, and look, I, you know, I've been playing a lot of the new XCOM game, so now I'm interested in, who are the snake people? Those are the Ophidians. Uh, they were actually one of the last armies released. So their range, and that's part of this, is not all the ranges are fully fleshed out. Some of the earlier ranges have way more. The Ophidians are one of the, the last lines, um, and they are a mix of the Ophidian snakes themselves and then also their slaves that they bring into battle to, uh, you know, help them or really just get in the way and die. Yeah, they got, like, Jungle Book uh, hypnotism powers. Okay, so who, which one of their slaves? Is that the, uh, the topless guy standing next to them? That's right, and then they also have more heavily armored ones that are actually, if you look at the Kickstarter up above, uh, that look more like the Chaos Warrior kind of uh, ah, ones. Ah, okay. Those are the apostates of darkness. <laughs> All right, look, who is the um, 
And I'll have this linked in the show notes so you can see what we're talking about. Um, you know, okay, we got the Caterpillar Dwarves. Who is the Scarecrow-looking dude? That is Niran the Scary. He is a uh, priest that ended up going into the caverns to try and, um, let's say, uh, use the power of faith to unbind the Midnar. And, um, well, you can see what they turned him into. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. And, uh, yeah, uh, who's the dog handler down there on the left with his pink dogs? The, the jailer from Todd Wallen? Uh, it's actually or... the Molasaur, which uh, Cadwallen oh. is interesting. So Cadwallen is uh, sort of like a free city approach where um, Rackham kind of double dipped here. They had an RPG that was built around like city life, D&D style, and they also were using this as sort of a catch-all to produce a bunch of weird and crazy models. So Cadwallen itself has different guilds. Obviously, the guilds of Cadwallen became its own little weird mini game. Um, but there also were the militia, and there's, um, you know, different different guilds out there. So the the dog handler um, is is one of those models. The key thing here that I think is interesting with this Kickstarter, all of the stuff you're looking at here that they're selling you for this, this is all the original paint jobs from 2005, right? They didn't like, none of this stuff, even the oh, even some of the models, yeah, right. Even the models they have, some of the models they don't have painted, they just have the artwork. So not, they didn't create anything new for this Kickstarter. It's just a dump of the pictures that are from the 2005. Hmm. So you think they were sitting there going like, wow, okay, like uh, half a million dollars worth of people bought into this. So what do we do now? What, so, uh, what, do, what do you think they were expecting out of this? So Chris and I both have the same theory, I think. And both of us, the theory that we think is they wanted to produce um, their own version of Confrontation. But, and they, had, they hired a person to do that. They That had been working up until a couple months ago, I feel like. Um, yeah, right. On and that, yeah. Their goal there was then to use this money to fund the creation of uh, what they called Confrontation Resurrection, or the, the next version of Confrontation. I mean, if you're keeping score at home, this is Confrontation version 7, whatever, whatever version this is now, right? Um, and that was really what we think they were trying to do. This would be their goal here was to take these models, produce them as quickly and as cheaply as, as possible, um, make bank off of it, and then sort of move on. Um, the problem here is even producing these models quickly and cheaply was kind of beyond the scale when you're talking, you know, 178 models per box or whatever else. And unique models. It's not like you're getting a board game that has, oh, we have like 80 models with 10 different sculpts. Um, you're actually getting 178 unique sculpts. Nothing is repeated in that box. And some of them are gigantic. That's the other The other part is, like, you see the Wolfen um, are about three to four times the size of a human model. Um, the orcs in there, the behemoth orcs, which are my favorite things, I weighed them. They're, they weigh five times as much as a human model. Um, like, you're, you're dealing with, like, a scale of miniatures that is kind of hard to comprehend if you're not super familiar um, your 178 miniatures that they eventually decided to be metal. You're looking at a box that is heavier than like anything you could imagine getting a Kickstarter for like a board game or miniature game. Um, Kingdom Death maybe aside, I think it would be heavier than that. But hmm. it, it's okay. it's a massive it's a massive undertaking, and they had no idea what they were getting into. Um, they ended up hiring. Uh, they ended up not following through with their original producers um, and hiring um, a uh, French company that does uh, board game casting 
that produced a couple of miniatures and I haven't heard anything from them since their social media has been quiet on the, the confrontation account since they were hired. Yeah. I mean, let's talk, let's tell the end of the sad story here, which the end of the sad story is um, as far as we can tell, nobody has received any models from this Kickstarter, whether it was the original pledges, whether it was the add-ons, whether it was any of the resins. Um, I will say I think maybe a dozen people got a single resin model. And to, oh. be, to be fair, though, the resin models that they did receive, you and I can buy today, right? Yes, are, that is true. Yes. None of those are models that they have uniquely, like, maybe they uniquely cast them, maybe they didn't. The bottom line is there's nothing that we've seen that, that clearly shows that they produced something from that or that it was something that, you know, they can't get otherwise. Um, Sans Dieter themselves has filed for bankruptcy. As of December of 2019, they made a Christmas announcement that they are shutting down their shop, not shipping anything. Um, this is after they apparently were called out by Chaosium as not actually paying. They hadn't actually paid for the IP for Cthulhu for a couple of years. I think it was two or three years. Um, and so Chaosium like publicly said, like, we've been trying to work with them. They haven't paid us anything. They refuse to like work with us. So, you know, just so you know, like they're producing, they had a Kickstarter up that they had to pull down or a new relay, something um, that they had to pull down. They had an, they had attempted another Kickstarter for something called um, Choose Cthulhu or something like that um, that got an IP dispute and got pulled down because um, they were using a lot of um, art s art IP from uh, their previous stuff when they were working with Chaosium. Um, I have a really negative opinion of Sans Detour and their very unscrupulous shady business practices. They're they are they're bad. And the other thing to add here, by the way, when they, this Kickstarter first launched, one of the first things that Sans Detour slash Stellar Licensing, the one that owns the license, um, did was they took the existing recasters that people had access to, that people were using to get these models, and they shut them down. Which, depending on how you feel about recasters, is good, bad, whatever, uh, but, but it also meant that the ability to get and locate some of these models has uh, dried up substantially. Wow. Okay. They actually, um, they, they filed an IP dispute. The, the main recaster, I'm just going to call him out, um, is the, the people that make Legends of Signum, um, which was another Kickstarter right around the same time as the Confrontation one. Surprise, surprise. Um, and they got an IP dispute. They were taken down for a couple days, a week or so, um, until it was resolved. And it was resolved that they, right or wrong, were found to be no, not using any of the Rackham um, IP in their current Kickstarter. Um, although they still have a website up that has all that stuff up on there, just not for sale. To be fair, right? This is uh, they're their own interesting story, right? Because they started as a recaster and they seem to be utilizing the funds they gained from recasting to go straight and cre and produce their own game, their own whatever. Um, and that itself is an interesting story. But um, San Tour did shut them down, and there isn't really a way to get any of those recast models uh, now. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. I had never heard of them. And I'm looking at it now, and yeah, that's some really cool sculpts and stuff. And again, this is another uh, skirmish miniature game. Mm -hmm. They have a collectible card aspect on this one. Um, we can buy card packs to get abilities. I, I have never played it, but I, I looked into it because of all the relationship. Oh, wow. This, this was like a $100,000 uh, Kickstarter. They just wanted yeah, like twelve grand. It didn't do poorly. Like It did all right, and I think they, they continue to like produce miniatures and rules for their game to be fair one of the things that the, the reason why they're they're buying is likely low here is that as they were producing and recasting confrontation models they had hired out as several uh mostly talented fans 
to produce some other models that for Rackham that didn't have the concept art or had never been produced. Um, some of the Legends of Signal models, whether they're a direct copy or not, that's up for debate. Um, they had produced many of those models previously and had them for sale. The Kickstarter was their attempt to sort of bundle that together into a game and sell them in sort of packets. But many of those Legends of Signal models had been around and for sale for, you know, a year or two prior. This is, uh, yeah, see, this is why I wanted to talk about this. This is really, <laughs> really interesting. It's this whole weird, yeah, thing going on, you know, in, in the background that I had no idea. Yeah, it's, and like Josh has said many times, like, there, there are a lot of rabbit fans who, um, I say a lot, like, there's not a ton. There are rabbit fans that will look into and be in touch with everything, Josh being one of them. Um, and, yeah. The other the other thing that um, Sans Detour was doing was um, the. Are you familiar with the concept of master models or master miniatures? What those are? No. What What is that? So when a miniature is being produced, you have a sculptor sculpted out of some medium, usually like green stuff, sculpting clay, whatever, um, and that is what's considered a master model. It's the one. It's the figure that gets broken down and pressed into a mold to make every model after that. Um, sometimes they'll use the first cast of that to make more miniatures, depending on whatever. Um, and Sans Detour, Stellar Licensing, um, is selling them. Um, they, they've put them up for sale um, outside of the Kickstarter and kind of integrated into the Kickstarter through a weird system they did. Um, but, like, it's, it's a weird bit of, like, Rackham history of if you can track down master models, that's just a cool thing to have. Like, it's it's an original sculpt, like it's a one-of-a-kind thing. It's usually a little bit more detailed than you would get a, in a production model because of the way that producing miniatures is kind of like copying it. Copy it at, at some points. Um, but they're selling them. They definitely do not have the entire line. and They definitely don't have... They, they probably don't have everything that they're selling through the Kickstarter, which means that they are um, most likely, um, you know, making uh, molds off of like just production miniatures which is like i said kind of like copying a uh, copy so like some detail is lost through that process it also means that um if they're selling the masters they're being distributed out to someone else whoever it is gets a master of this thing gets a master of that thing it becomes very hard to if at any point in the future anyone wants to do this again to bring the game back and to make like another version of the game this this is uh this this kickstarter is doing everything it, it can, it seems, to really, like, make it impossible. It, it's using a scorched earth kind of policy where it's like, cool, these miniatures are great. They're well-liked. They're obviously still sought after if there's a, a market for them on eBay and recasters. They're doing what they can to, you know, for whatever reason they have, to make it very hard for that to happen again because they're selling master models. They, they're just they're kind of getting rid of what you would need to do this um, if you were to try again. I think it's worth adding at this point. We're not affiliated with the Kickstarter. <laughs> if you couldn't tell. <laughs> and uh, and the other piece is uh, everything we're we're talking about here is uh, what we've gained through observing and through speculation. We don't have any insider info on any of this stuff right now. Yeah, I mean, the only reason, I, at least I know what I know, is um, I, I've gone to like French forums and done translations there. I've been very observant. Um, I've talked to Josh about a lot as he kind of is more aware of the history. But, um, you know, it just, just looking the people up who are in the company doing it is probably good business practice for any Kickstarter. Um, 
but doing that to see what other business ventures there and, and looking into those, you can kind of get the uh, history of the company and lots of French translation is, is a lot of this, honestly, <laughs> because a lot of the business they do is not in English. Um, but it's all publicly out there. And a lot of, to be fair, I will say a lot of what we're saying, um, where we'll say like, Hey, this is speculation. It's speculation. If you want to find out this information though, you can go to French forums. You can go to their um, Facebook. You can go anywhere and kind of read up on it. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Chris was uh, cheeseburger boy number one. I think, well, you know, that was the insult they they, sh they tossed your way. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this information, Chris and other people were trying to showcase and, and shine light on during the Kickstarter itself to make sure that guys like the 1,794 euro guy uh didn't lose that money and uh that was uh let's just say that was an interesting month of kickstarter running as you had people like chris that were trying to highlight and show um some some questions that needed to be answered and you had other people that were saying blindly have faith which was pretty interesting when, when it came down to it the the sans detour uh, company didn't produce they produced next to nothing for the kickstarter they pulled old images they linked to the old rule book they didn't do any work they just kind of put it out there and said this is our plan and raised a lot of money on that and um you know the, you can say that's like the spirit of kickstarter um but comparing that against most like after the fact successful kickstarter projects you're going to find the trend that people have have made prototypes or have a familiarity with the industry that they're working in um in some way, like they, they've done playtesting if they're making a game. They've made miniatures in, in the past. Like something has been made and done. And Sans Detour had done none of that. Um, their biggest accomplishment um, in terms of like producing anything was probably sending some miniatures out to get painted. And and Hal Haraldez painted like four of them. They're, they're very nice. They're, you know, if you want to see them. Um, but otherwise, they, they didn't do anything themselves or anything new. Okay, well, I guess I'm really happy that I did not back that. Yeah, <laughs> good decision. All right, so here we are. And we're at the end. The the, uh, the Kickstarter is pretty sketchy. We'll see how that goes. And uh, so if you didn't back it or if you did and you really want to get in this game, how do you do it? It's a great question, and it's harder today than it's probably ever been. But... Um, the first thing that I that I would say is um, I have compiled the vast majority of the resources that anybody would ever need. I will happily pass those along to you to either put in the show notes or people can reach out directly to me. Uh, I'll have my I'll send you my email. Sure. I'll make sure that in that direction. Yeah. Um, the other piece is there's a couple Facebook groups and things like that that people can join where they can locate uh, models at probably a cheaper and better price than ebay these days which uh we always want more people in the in the community um you know chris and i have built a community here but we're we want confrontation players everywhere um i host a confrontation tournament every year um where we kind of tongue-in-cheek crown the world champion um who knows if this year will happen with the nature of the pandemic but uh if it doesn't happen this year it'll absolutely happen next year um and we're happy to have as many people as possible competing for that world championship Okay, well, let me ask you this. Um, if, if somebody's getting into it now, what rule book do they get? It's a great question. So there are, um, this is this is part of the challenge. There is 
the confrontation 3.0 rulebook, the basic rulebook, I would suggest for everyone to get just so they can understand the world and understand the core of the rules and the core mechanics of that. We play a version of it, and I'll link out the house rules so people can view that. Um, that is a very simplified version that's built off of the last internationally agreed upon tournament rules. Um, and we have some minor tweaks to it from there. The French have a version of fan-created rules called Confetti. I will link out to that. And the Italians have a version of uh, fan rules called Confrontation Evolution. Uh, both of those places and, and will be helpful uh, for people to look at it and figure out what version of the game they want. Um, Chris and I both kind of agree that the version we play is more in line with how we like it. It's more in line with traditional confrontation. Um, the French and Italians have probably a little bit more of a modernized approach to the game, which isn't bad either. Um, so you can't really go wrong either way. But, um, you know, those are the, the best starting points. Um, the cool thing about confrontation as a game is that you basically need one character and then you need some models. And that's about it. The game will function at a low points level. It'll function at a high points level. Um, most games are 300 or 400 points. Um, I will pass along a summary doc to give people that, that quick cheat sheet if they want to just see stuff at a high level. Um, and it is it is pretty simple uh, to get into from there. Uh, you just got to find a friend and somebody else to play along. The other piece that I'll add, uh, just just recently, uh, there was a, uh, a mod added to Tabletop Simulator to play Confrontation 3.5 uh, on Tabletop Simulator through Steam. All right. Yeah, and that's... And uh, that thing has completely blown up over this whole pandemic. <laughs> uh, in fact, yeah. it's, it's blown up so big that FFG has started to pull down uh, Star Wars Legion mods and what ha and X-Wing mods. Kind of a dick move, but uh, yeah. So anyway. I, I get it, but yeah, it makes sense. This is my sales pitch that I'll say and that I, I tell people all the time for confrontation. It's a huge pain because the game is dead. It's a huge pain to locate some models. But that's actually a good thing, too. You don't have anybody tearing down your tabletop simulator mods. Nobody's creating new rules or modifying your profiles overnight and making your models obsolete or not playable anymore. Uh, you know, once you sign up, once you get in the game, you've got something for life. And as long as you've got a community together to do it, you've got somebody to play with and you can really enjoy the game, whether it's 2005 or 2045. And, and I'll add on to that. Um, we're a lot of living games, and I love them. I play one or two games that are currently have like a living rule system, you know, things get changed. Um, confrontation, even though it's like not, nothing's changing with it, we haven't found a like dominant strategy. There's not like a list you can bring to everything and just will win. Um, you can do a lot with it and there will almost always be like a counter to that, that someone can figure out um, that you can then build around. Like it's very fluid in the way that, you know, even though the rules and, and the profiles are static, the game kind of, you could still have fun being like, oh, this didn't work last time, let me try this. Uh, there's not a best list, there's not a best strategy that exists out there that that we found, at least. I, I agree with that, and I think that one of the things that makes the game, uh, the game mechanics are, are really well balanced in a combination of, do you take the big elite list and the big monster zombies? Do you take the little gribblies? Do you take the whatever? It works out pretty well. I'll add that any of the events that I've, run, uh, that I've won, I've had no repeat champions. I've had no repeat armies uh, repeating as champion as well. Um, and again, you know, it's it's been a pretty balanced group. And, you know, we play, well, we used to play every week. Um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, even with varying skill levels, you'd have some discrepancy and you wouldn't have somebody winning every single week or anything like that. Okay, so in this version of Confrontation you're talking about playing, that would be the 10 or 12 models aside, not the big army thing, right? 
Yes, that, that would be Confrontation 3 or Confrontation 3.5. Those are most likely the versions that we play. Um, Confrontation the Evo, Confrontation Evolution for the Italians, or Confede is the same thing. Uh, 20 model limit is pretty standard for the game. Um, the goal there of the 20 uh, the 20 model games, 20 per side, is played on a 2 foot by 4 foot table, so it's actually a smaller space. Um, and it also is done in about an hour and a half or so. Okay, so all the cool kids play that. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the, what we'll go with. The mass battle version of the game for Ragnarok or Age of Ragnarok, um, some people play them. I know there is a there is at least one YouTuber um, who's like a board game junkie that he loves AT43 and he loves um, Confrontation Age of Ragnarok. So occasionally he will put up a game. He's about the only person I think I've regularly come across that still plays. Um, most people I know are, are playing Confrontation, and I'll tell you, as somebody that has gotten a bunch of people into this game, way easier to sell, you know, our, our ADD gamers or whoever else on, hey, pick up 10 models, than it is to say, hey, pick up 60 or 80. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, they are not that bad on, um, at least from what I can remember seeing them here and there, in the even in the past year. Uh, model prices. Of course, I don't know about like the rare ones and the the harder to find ones or whatever. So you know. Anyway. This is uh, one of our friends has actually noted this, which makes us both kind of laugh. Is uh, when you spend when you spend so much time looking at Games Workshop prices or some of these other games out there, you're accustomed to models costing a certain price, and then even the rack them out of print prices seem cheap because you're so accustomed to the other you know higher price models or stuff like that look that's <laughs> that's very true on like several levels there have been other hobbies and stuff I've, <laughs> I've gotten into they're like well you know it's it's kind of expensive to get into this i'm like really how much oh no no, no. that's cheaper than gw so no problem it's only half a 40k army you're good yeah to go. yeah <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we're now doing hobbies in, in 40k prices i like this this is uh yeah. This is going to happen. If that's how everybody thinks, then uh, everybody should play in confrontation, you know. Look, I, I've seen uh, several people, like, just be, they've played, like, GW stuff for decades, and then all of a sudden get into something else. You know, like, Star Wars Legion is, is big now, uh, mm -hmm. Flames of War is having a resurgence, or Bolt Action, anything is, and they're like, it is so much cheaper to, to buy this, you know, I'm buying like an entire army for what it would have cost me for two, uh, you know, 40k units. I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty much true. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Well, everybody in the game for sure. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. And like I said, this I know it was weird for me to reach out because you got you're like, what do you want to actually talk about? And I'm like, look, I just want to know. <laughs> you know, I I don't know anything about this. I've never encountered a person where in which that I could talk to about this that knew this. And so this is fascinating. And of course, I you know I've got the show, so I'm like, well, I'll share this knowledge. And yeah. that's, that's kind of like how I wanted to do it. So, um, so yeah. So I need a rule book. I need to buy some Wolfen miniatures, and uh, maybe some dwarves. I really like the dwarf sculpts. They're kind of neat. Yeah, they're uh, dwarves are great. Uh, Wolfen are great. You can't really go wrong with any of them. Each of the armies is uh, has got a lot of character, and they all play a little bit differently. It's one of the great things about the game is uh, Wolfen are incredibly fast and incredibly strong. They play like a wolf pack. They're a little fragile on their own. They need some friends, and um, they're not really militarily disciplined. They're more of a guerrilla-style play, whereas the dwarves are a little slow and steady. They're really resilient, uh, and they're very, very disciplined, but they're not going to be anywhere near as fast or as strong as the wolfen. 
they have a very interesting look the way they've done those. Um, it's rare, kind of rare that you see like an original take on dwarves, which uh, there's another French company doing a, yet another mass fantasy battle game. I can't think of the name of it. Their dwarves are called something, Dwigger or whatever, and they're, they're different. So that was an original take. And if you're familiar with the, um, there's an RPG, a German RPG that got uh, printed. It's a low fantasy RPG. So their dwarves have like huge noses, big ears, and, and stuff like that. But uh, Rackham sculpts were very original, I thought. So, yeah. They, they are. The cool, the cool thing with the dwarves in particular is Rackham made them different, unique, as you said, but they also made them have giant heads, and that allowed them to be incredibly expressive, where normally most dwarf sculpts are just basically some dude in armor who's covered in a beard. Right, yeah. He's, wear he's wearing a full suit of armor. He has a gigantic uh, hammer, and he has this huge beard that just comes out of the armor, and it's braided and whatever, and yeah. And then I think Josh, you pointed it out to me a fun little design note on the uh, the dwarves there is none of them have mustaches. Oh, you're killing me. That's that's yeah. that's gonna. I know you're I, going. Once I saw that, I uh, I couldn't go back. I was like, wait, what? And I I couldn't see that. Yeah, uh, none of them have mustaches, so their entire face is visible, um, which is a fun design note that contributes to that kind of unique look. Yeah, it's interesting too because you get stuff like the dwarf range in particular that, and you see this across across a bunch of rack and ranges. Is they're unified, and they're unified oftentimes through armor or other things like that. But there's also some discrepancies. So the dwarves themselves, they've got plains dwarves, which are more of your naked barbarian dwarves, and then you've got some more heavily armored, sort of steam powered like mecha dwarves, uh, and they're both part of the same army, um, and they have similar and some some slightly different rules and. and it's little things like that that kind of make the game interesting and kind of make you kind of come back to the sculpts and, and see the the commonality, but also the uniqueness even within an individual range. Yeah, I, I you had me at steampunk armor, guys. That <laughs> seems really cool. I like that. Yeah, the other the other big. Uh, so oh, I'm gonna rant about my favorite guys real quick. Do it, the, do um, it. The, yeah, I can do this for a long time. Um, the orcs. Uh, you look at the the beginning of the line. You had orcs that are like. Uh, Kind of uh, working off of some uh, Native American stereotypes. They're very in tune with nature. They have animal deities. Um, the orcs of Rano Core, and then near the end of the line, they started introducing these orcs, the Behemoth. That a couple of the sculpts completely changed the look of the face and the build, um, and they went after like a Mongolian kind of stereotype, like an old uh, Golden Horde kind of thing. Um, and so you have these like massive backpacks with the. the kind of traditional old Mongolian hats and stuff um, contrasted with these orcs that are like mostly naked, may, might have some animal skins on them and that's about it, that are both part of the same army and play incredibly different on the table. Um, so, I mean, like that's like, like I said, you have like 17 factions. There are a number of sub factions, sub things in there. The game only ran ten years, but um, in those ten years, they managed to put out a huge variety of um, model designs and play designs. And they didn't even get to the dark elves, right? I mean, one of the things that's interesting too is there was a lot of planning ahead, right? So when Rackham first, they they knew exactly where they were headed. They knew the different factions they were creating. Um, very few of these factions were created sort of from scratch or halfway through. Most of this stuff was intentional from the very start they just never got around to doing it all right so 
in preparing for this and, and like looking for, well, like, well, you know, you just kind of Google it and whatever. And the website comes up cadwallon.com. Yep. That's the recaster. That was so, um, Cadwallon and Legends of Signum are, they're trying their best to not be one of the same. We believe they're one of the same. Um, cadwallon.com was one of the first things to crop up. They legitimize the, they legitimize the recast business by basically having the website like Cadwallon that allowed you to go through and see models, pick them out, purchase them. They also compiled a bunch of the sources for rules that didn't exist um, for a lot of people at that point. Yeah, because I, like, I see them here, and it just says, like, notify me, like, whenever something is, yeah, I yeah, guess that, is available. That will not happen anytime soon. If, uh, if you're on that website, if you go to the the, 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 the rightmost uh, thing, the confrontation rules and card, cards and rules, yeah. Um, you'll get a like a chart of all of the uh, different armies that breaks it down. You can actually access most of the rules um, that came with like you get you click on something like the the Aquilini Griffins. You see the model. You'll click it. Um, it'll give you like the stat card for it and any of the cards that most of the cards that came along with it. This is um, a pretty complete. It's not complete. It's not everything. It's pretty up there in terms of. Uh, completeness, though. The advantage, uh, of it is um, it's, the advantage of it is it's really accessible, right? Um, you, you found it right away. Which is the Italian version is also accessible. One of the problems with Cadwallon.com um, is that they have actually incorporated some of the fan sculpts um, into the range. So some of those models are not actually the official rack of models, but they were still trying to sell them as kind of like they were official rack of models. Okay. Now, it... it it has some division here. It has light armies, darkness, destiny, and is that various? But various is misspelled. It's missing an O. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so the, yeah. The elves are built into light, destiny, and darkness, which ties back into the lore of, of our clash um, in the world. And the various uh, was built up of like Cadwallon, which is like the free city kind of thing. There's also elementals and, and things that don't fit fully into individual armies, but can be brought by many, many. Okay, so um, so I'm assuming light is good, darkness bad. So you'd think that, right? Right, right. So if my guess, my question would be, what is destiny? So destiny is made up of basically many of the non-humans. Uh, light and darkness is a concept created by humanity when they came to Arclash. Um, and so most of the factions that are light or dark are um, either humans or human focused, or they are, you know, a split off or a splinter later on um, in this in the timeline. But destiny is made up of more of the ancient people that existed on our clash prior to the coming of, of man. And so the dwarves are typically destiny. The orcs are, are destiny. The goblins are destiny. The wolfen are destiny. You get a lot of the armies like that that have existed prior to, to Mankind showing up, and Mankind brought along the concept of light and dark. And I'll, and I'll say the Cod Wallen takes it from, like, the last bit of lore, where dwarves moved over to light away from destiny, devourers moved over to darkness away from destiny. Um, so just, it's a weird lore note that, like, their destiny definitely had the bulk of, like, the factions um, in the game, and light apparently had the least. So the other piece for it, too, is... Uh that was one of those things that took place during the end times, right? Or for lack of, I'm, I'm calling it that because I can't think of a better term for it. And, you know, props to Games Workshop for coming up with that. Um, 
that's kind of what it is. As, as the end times kind of hit, some of the armies shifted a little bit. Um, whether or not you adhere to that or believe that, it's you know, it's up to you. The game's dead. Do what you want. Um, but yeah, so they they, they had so devourers and uh, dwarves of Tyrannabor, the basic dwarves, were part of Destiny. All right, now I clicked on the little right hand uh, thing for Warriors of the Rising Sun, and again, you can see this in the show notes. Uh, these apparently are available because I can add it to cart. These are really neat. These are kind of I know you mentioned like uh, kind of samurai orcs or uh, Mongolian orcs. But they also have some Wolfen in here. Yeah, those are those are going to be models produced by Age of Signum Codwallen, um, separate from their recasting. So they're they they take heavy inspiration from the aesthetics of Confrontation, but they are unique um, sculpts. Like they they don't exist in the in Confrontation. They are they're new after the game died. Okay, so yeah, it's just a it cool be, looking figure. Yeah, totally. And one of the pushes for a lot of people as well is because the game is, has been dead as long as it has, there's a lot of people that are looking to, to do exactly that, to expand out and create new models, new sculpts, or to create new rules for models. Um, particularly as the, when the game had died, some of the later factions, Ophidians are one of them, um, Ophidians didn't have as many profiles as some of the uh, older armies like the Undead or even the Basic Dwarves. Um, and so you, you see a lot of the fans uh, going out of their way to create additional profiles and things like that. Okay. The big one is the the the, uh, the dark elf equivalent. Um, the Akashan elves uh, got exactly one model that was a promotional model right near the end. <laughs> um, so it's like I I have a I have one of them. Um, it's probably not original, but because uh, the original model is insanely expensive because there's so few produced. Um, but like they they had one model. I've seen a couple um, attempts to kind of like flesh that out into a full faction because. How could you have a fantasy game that have like light elves and wood elves, and not dark elves? It's it's a it's a weird omission that like eventually they would have gotten to. Just time ran out for them before they ran out of money. And Chris has looked a lot at that stuff, uh, especially yeah, I like them a elves. lot. And um, there's a lot of interesting um, lore behind them that would have been really cool if, if Rackham had been able to flesh it out and, and kind of make an, uh, a faction of them to kind of get these weird spider elves. All right, there's a dwarf golem. That was done. Yeah, yep. Steam yep, that's the Steam Golem that was uh, cool. Many are not produced. That those are uh, those are the unreleased models that people really really wanted, um, and so cool. Many are not produced that and sold it for I think 120 bucks retail. Uh, so the one that's listed on Cadwallon is going to be a recast, but you probably can find either you can either go with the recast or you can find um, a legitimate one circling around somewhere for a reasonable price. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. two versions. There's the first one and the second one. They have different parts of different kits. Fair warning on that kit. Uh, never came with instructions, so best of luck putting together <laughs> hundreds of parts. Yeah, that yeah, that doesn't sound very yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so okay. So that that is what comes up. That is like the first thing when you actually Google like Rackham confrontation is Cad Wallon. You know, and there is another thing that's like, um, there's a list of just, it's like Rackham Miniatures dot blah, blah, blah dot com that just kind of just shows the different figures that were available. And of course, yeah. Noble Knight is there selling stuff at a pretty 
high price, whatever. But because uh, that's what they do. I've never. Yeah, they got them. They're trying their best, man. Everybody's got to make, you know, they got to make a living now. So, uh, yeah, Noble Knight's been around for a while. Um, I, uh, I'll be honest, I've loved Noble Knight because um, I've known the price point better than them on a handful of occasions, and um, that's been super beneficial to me. Um, but yeah, they're they're typically pretty marked up and pretty hard to get. Uh, your better option these days are there's some Facebook groups that that help out. Um, because a lot of people that are part of this community that if you've stuck around this long, your goal is really to make sure that the, the models stay within people that are going to use them or love them because that's better than people just trying to make a quick buck on stuff. That's true. Absolutely. So, okay. I guess we're, we're, we're at the end. We, we were, we're at the end times of, of confrontation. It's, did it. It, it, it's died. And, uh, there is a pretty sketchy, uh, Kickstarter that may or may not, actually produce and uh yeah so you're gonna give me some resources that i can post in the show notes to help people if you're interested in this game you know actually seek it out i actually owned i think that third edition rule book at some point i remember it was a hardback rule book and yeah. relatively right. thick yeah it's yep. a gorgeous rule book too i mean the um the art in there is fantastic i have it in front of me now it's roughly 200 pages um yeah. It, all the Rackham stuff, all the Rackham stuff is, is designed, you know, it's really, really well designed. It's really well put together. Um, you know, modern Games Workshop and some of the other stuff out there, they've kind of cut up a little bit, but Games Work, uh, but Rackham stuff from back in the day is, is still gorgeous. The Havoc magazines are gorgeous. Um, I'll put together resources. I've got a digital digital copies of the rule books, digital copies of the Cry Havoc, stuff like that. Happy to share those resources with anybody that wants them. Um, hopefully they'll gain a little bit of love that Chris and I have for this game. Well, uh, that was going to be a question of mine. I know with a lot of dead games, um, they you can legally purchase like PDFs of it on say like Drive Through RPG or or whatever. Is there anything like that for confrontation? Yeah, we uh, it's it's all free. Uh, we have it all out there. Everybody, we're not the only ones either. There's a bunch of places that that stuff is free. Um, the hardest thing for new players, the hardest thing for anybody involved with this game is locating uh, the profile cards and understanding the profile cards themselves. So one of the complexities around confrontation is around mystics, wizards, or faithful. Um, they have a variety of options and spells and things to cast like that. Um, back in the day when you bought a wizard, the wizard came with the, the profile card, but they also came with a handful of spells that represented, you know, one-fifth or one-sixth of what they could possibly cast or use in a game. Fine, back in the day, but now we're all accustomed to be able to open a book and figure out anything we ever want to do. Um, these resources are scattered to the wind. It's really hard to get all that stuff together. Um, we're happy to share resources that have the cards in one place, they're easier for people to digest and things like that. Cadwallon.com is a good example of where to find the vast majority of the cards. Uh, but that's the hardest piece right now for players is being able to get those um, those cards to go along with playing the game. The rules, the other things like that, those are easily available and out there. It's the cards themselves a little bit harder. And anybody that wants to do them, and everybody knows this with dead games, like you may have to print them. You may have to you know, roll down by Kinko's or FedEx or whatever and print them out or use your own home printer. Um, but... Once you have the cards, you got the cards, you'll be good to play. Um, and again, you're only using a handful because you're using between, uh, you know, 8 and 20 miles. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I guess if you were buying a miniature, that, you know, obviously they're, they're probably used 
nowadays. So if you if you're buying that, it may or may not come with the card, and so you would kind of be like, well, I don't know how to do this really cool guy. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's the, biggest, it's the biggest hurdle right now, and sometimes you get cards. Oftentimes, you're, if you're dealing with people that have loved or know the game, that you know, you come with cards. But um, it's recasts don't come with cards, and um, getting things from other locations may not come with cards, and uh, it, it can be definitely a challenge. Um, it's it's probably the hardest thing in terms of selling and, and teaching new players is, is cards and, and that aspect of the game. All right, I guess. Uh... The one thing I haven't talked about was like, well, how does from a just a uh, gaming perspective, game theory kind of perspective, do you need like a leader? And all these figures are characters, right? They're not. That's the other uh, piece. There are a list of every faction has a variety of different characters and then a bunch of troops. Um, the game works in that it's an alternating activation system. Um, it's an I go, you go, and the, the order of which you activate your models is built on your activation deck. So each model, each card represents between one and three models, and at the start of your turn, you're building a deck of how you want to activate for your turn. Part of the bluff and tactical mechanic is understanding what I want to do versus what you want to do and trying to counter that off. Uh, each army is required to take a character or a leader, and then you can take um, troops you know, to fill out the rest of the points. Restrictions around troops are, are basically um, you can't have more than two cards of models and um, certain certain models, the bigger models, you typically get one model per card, so you're going to be limited to maybe two of them. But it's pretty open, it's pretty uh, out there, and it's really easy to kind of build a list with just about anything. Yeah, the, the main restriction on the, the card building thing prevents you from spamming um, like 45 goblins that are like three or four points each. Uh, so... You can't roll up and be like, here's a sea of goblins. You can have a lot of them, but you're not going to be able to just fill fill out on, like, the lowest of low point things or um, have, like, two super units that are identical. Um, otherwise, it's really open. You can have, like, you can have a list of half, half your things are characters, half are troops. You have one little character and a bunch of troops, whatever you want to do. Um, it's pretty open and pretty easy to build something that feels fun whether you want to be competitive or you want to adhere to a theme it also means you can take the models you like right like that's that's the other piece that makes the game a lot of fun is that hey i really like you know maybe you really like the uh this bow and arrow um snake or whoever else like you can find a way to get those things in your list and uh and have some fun with models you really like hmm. okay so uh how does like um ranged attacks work versus a close combat yep so um chris what do you want range or you want close combat which one do you want to talk about uh, nine times out of ten close combat is better from like a tactical perspective um the range combat in this game is functional there are things that can use it but it generally doesn't do that much damage it's, and, it's actually um, good right? so what i want yeah, to say is like, one of the things that happens in a lot of games out there is there's a negative play experience where somebody rolls up with a gun line and shoots you off Right, you're like so you're you're playing the uh, takeoff model simulator where you're just taking your own models off the table. Uh, confrontation shooting is typically designed to to plunk some wounds, with a few exceptions. There are some models that really can do some devastating shooting, uh, but it's few and far between. Uh, models have range increments, so you'll see on cards you'll see you know 20, 30, 40. That represents a short, medium, or long range. 
that influences the difficulty of the shot from how far away um, those models are. And so the key to shooting is... Just a heads up, we're using centimeters because this is a French game. Um, so the 20, 30, 40 <laughs> is not as long as you think it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, the conversation is really about maximizing short distances. Everything's in centimeters. The game is very uh, tactical within uh, small distances. Uh, shooting, though, you're, you're going to target a model. You're going to um, roll to hit. And the key to shooting is you're only going to get six shots in a game because you only have six turns. And no, there's very few models that fire more than once. So, um, you know, taking shooters to plunk off wounds or to, to pull somebody off an objective is really, really valuable. But um, there are very few armies that are going to line up in a gun line and blow you all the way off. Uh, more likely, you're going to need um, some combat in there. Combat is a, a method to give you more dice, but the counter to that, of course, is you're more at risk because you can get hit back. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I just noticed, you know, there's a few figures that are actually armed with a bow or a crossbow or, you know, something like that. So just curious. It's mm -hmm. huge, and uh, there's a tactical play there because uh, 3.5 and some of the later rules, uh, even some of the fan versions of the Fools, uh, really enhance the, the desire uh, for people to bring mystics, faithful, or wizards. Um, by taking those models, you have to screen those effectively and protect them. Shooting is a very easy way to pluck some of those models off, and so you do have a rock, paper, scissors mechanic to it in, in some ways for that, uh, which is huge. Okay. Uh, combat itself, as um, as Chris said uh, a little while ago, I think um, every model ends up with a d6. They'll get one per extra opponent. Confrontation as a combat is designed into multiples of one, so it'll be a one-on-one -on -one fight or a two-on-one -on -one fight or three-on-one -on fight, um, and models will gain dice as they're outnumbered. But the mechanics of confrontation are actually very, very good in that. You don't always want to just outnumber your opponent. By outnumbering them, you're giving them more dice and giving them more of an opportunity to hurt you, uh, while at the same time reducing individual their strikes. Um, confrontation as a whole also has a wound chart, and models do not have hit points like traditional games. They actually have wound levels, and as a model gets hurt more, it will suffer uh, more penalties and actually be more ineffective in combat which gives a really fun mechanic to some of these bigger monsters. You really get the feeling of wearing them down or are actually getting them off the board, whereas the little weenie guys uh, may just instantly explode when they get hit by something uh, pretty heavy. All right, so what size table do you play this on? Um, the game has been played on a variety. The traditional table size was two feet by four feet, um, though we've played it on a three foot by three foot and a four foot by four foot. A lot of it depends. It modifies the game a little bit. Armies like dwarves um, are a little bit slower, so they prefer a, a two-foot by four-foot because it allows it, it makes it harder for them to be flanked, whereas on a four-foot table, they're going to struggle a little bit. Some of the wolfen armies or faster armies may want the bigger um, four-foot by four-foot table, but um, we've we've done, and, and the, our events are done on two-foot by four-foot table. Okay. Uh, yeah, just, I, I've always wondered. I knew it was a smaller type thing but uh then you know obviously a four by six and how do you choose like uh terrain uh it's go ahead. on there i mean <laughs> yeah we um terrain matters um it's we use it as much for the aesthetics of the game as my, as other things um it's not as overly restrictive as other games the encumbered terrain or slowing models down matters a lot but um, again, with shooting being a little bit more reduced, the line of sight doesn't matter anywhere near as much as it would in, say, like, Infinity or something like that. Okay. Just, yeah, just curious with it. 
All right, so I think we know we can now, thanks to this podcast, totally just re, you know fire this game up. It'll come back. Yeah. The Kickstarter, back. the Kickstarter will be fulfilled. You know, it, yes, nothing but wonders will happen. Actually. I love it. It's uh, I love the optimism. Yes. Um, yeah, anybody that wants more information or uh, even wants to just chat about some conversation, um, my email will be in the bottom of this, and uh, they can reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to anybody interested or any new players. Um, been doing this for a very long time, and um, I really, really love the game, and I'm happy to get anybody involved in any way I can. Now, I will say, like, okay, we're at, like, what conventions do you see or know of that this game is played, like, you know, every year? Uh, any, any, any convention I'm at, there's, there's definitely <laughs> competition going on. Um, we have now, for several years, there is no official confrontation event at the Nova Open. Um, there has been confrontation at every Nova Open, every Nova Open, and um, for many, many hours. Some of your uh, build events, by the way, once yeah, or twice. Yeah, I um, definitely have. Uh, we, we've definitely done that at Nova. Um, one of the goals, my goal this year, actually, was to go to Adepticon. Um, I have a fully painted confrontation uh, Age of Sigmar army. That's how many models I painted. That I was intending to go and play Age of Sigmar. Uh, prophetize the greatness that is confrontation and steal time, steal tables, and uh, play some confrontation at Adepticon this year, and it wasn't to be. Yeah, I, I've got to make it to Adepticon one year. It's not, well, yeah, it's close. A little distance for yeah. you, right? It's close ish. It's probably about eight hours because it's, it's Chicago's suburbs, right? Ish, yeah. sort of. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's eight. 12 hours thereabouts so yeah i know uh gen con has had a number of, of events in confrontation and i know um some of the west coast guys i think in, in years past i don't know if they still do we're actually at um lvo and stuff like that um usually the major events you'll get uh somebody there about it but chris will tell you um anytime anybody's ever seen us play confrontation or anything like that you get people stopping and going oh my gosh it's that game i remember that game or whatever uh which is a lot of fun yeah oh yeah I mean, that's me. I would have stopped and go, oh my god, I remember this game. I own stuff for this. I never found an opponent. I sold it. Now I want to, buy, I now want to play it again. And yeah, so that would have been me. So. Then you well, hey, whenever, whenever we can coordinate it, we'll, uh, we'll definitely set it up and we'll get you a game for real. Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, now I'm going to, uh, of course, before this airs, so I can get the good deals, I'm going to go look for uh, some Wolfen figures and um, maybe some dwarves. You know, because you have to have like the two... When you're when you're trying to play something that nobody else plays, you have to have two opposing forces just to show people like, oh, this is it. This is how it works. And yeah, so anyway, that's right. And uh, those give that's a good starting list. Um, we'll connect offline. I think I have um, some leftovers. I'm happy to ship your way. It's <sighs> cool. All right. So is there anything else we need to know? We, I mean, we've gone through the entire history. We know how it goes. Much better than actually interviewing the people that are involved. But absolutely. Yeah. So we know. This is this is how it is. I mean, I I honestly think, even at my local hobby town, there may be one unit of prepaints still there. Uh, you can go to a lot of game stores that have been in operation for fifteen plus years, and they will have something somewhere that's confrontation. I've done it when I travel wherever I go. I'll try and visit game stores, and that's that's what I'm looking for. It's like, where's your little bin of stuff that hasn't been touched in ten years? Um, I'll, you know, I'll take it off your hands for however much, just to, you know, free up some shelf space. And I'm guilty of this too. I, um, 
I, I follow this regularly. I, I check price points, that kind of stuff. And uh, what I do throughout the year is I will purchase stuff that's underpriced or, or too cheap. And um, during my event or other, other times, I'm happy to give away models or have them be price support or stuff like that to keep people in the game. And uh, that's really what's allowed, in many cases, um, some of these events to, to thrive. It, it really is more about maintaining the community than it is about anybody, um, you know, owning and controlling all of it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And uh, I guess uh, with this cursed IP... Maybe we'll see it again. I mean, honestly, it, you would think a Kickstarter would be perfect to restart something like this. And, uh, yeah, so maybe. If, if done right, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we'll wait. we're all waiting for Chris to, uh, we're waiting for Chris to own the IP and fix it all, right, Chris? Oh, yeah. If that, if that opportunity ever comes, look out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on and talking for like two hours about this game. Like I said, I, I'm fascinated by it. I have been fascinated by it for, for a long time, but I did not know anyone. And so just this chance encounter that I had and, yeah, ran with it. And I hope the people listening are also like, wow, thank you so much. This is awesome. I've always wanted to know. Or at the very least, like, wow, that's really neat. And, um, uh, I could see myself kind of getting into that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, come yeah, come look at some cool models. We love it. We've we've been doing it for forever, and um, anybody out there that wants to join, please do. It's it's a great game, and um, there's a reason why that IP is as loved it as as it is, and why people are still playing that game, you know, 15, 20 years later. Awesome. So thank you guys so much, and uh, yeah, look forward to maybe playing with you guys in the future. Sounds good. Thank you. Sounds great.